0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com/forthewild or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit forthewild.world/donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. The Paya Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. To learn more, visit kaliapea.org.
1: This is not easy research, and it's much easier to homogenize ice or tie it together geographically, get a metric for it, glaciers in this area are melting X amount, and then publish it. That gives us data that we can hold on to, but it doesn't tell us all that much about the human condition.
2: Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Andrew Stores, sitting in today for Ayana Young. Ayana's conversation today is with Dr. M. Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a geographer and glaciologist, National Geographic Society explorer, TED Fellow, three-time U.S. Fulbright scholar, and author of the recently released book, The Secret Lives of Glaciers. M. earned a doctorate from the University of Oregon in Geography and Glaciology, where she examined how climate change transformed people and glacier communities in Iceland. M serves as an Arctic expert for the National Geographic Society, holds a Master's of Science degree from the University of Montana, and served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia. She's worked for over a decade in the Arctic, chronicling climate change and communities, guiding backcountry trips, and exploring glacial systems. Her 2015 memoir, While Glaciers Slept, being human in a time of climate change weaves together the parallel stories of what happens when the climates of a family and a planet change. M writes about glaciers and people worldwide and lives outside of Eugene, Oregon. Now onto the conversation with Ayana and Dr. Jackson.
0: Well, M, I just want to start off by thanking you for being on the show today. I am really grateful for your work. And also, I have a very strong connection to glaciers. So this is a conversation that I have been thinking about, dreaming about for the last few weeks. And this is the best way to spend my day is talking about this with you. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So currently, our Earth has nearly 200,000 glaciers moving across its surface. And In the age of the Anthropocene, these glaciers have attained a kind of iconic status as this visual reference of what we risk losing due to climate change. But in this iconography, glaciers have really been oversimplified, and they've just been reduced to their relationship, mostly with warming weathers. In your book, The Secret Lives of Glaciers, you write, quote, Today's single story of glaciers has not been, and is not today, representative of the entirety of the life of a glacier. The life of a glacier that includes individuals, communities, culture, scale, negative and positive impacts, geography, place, in short, complexity. Complexity has no single story, no presupposed value, no certain future, end quote your writing is so beautiful and I really love that quote. And I'd love if you could begin our conversation by sharing why or when you recognize the value in telling the many stories of glaciers and ice. And then a second part to that is why are glaciers worth fighting for beyond just scientific justification?
1: These are huge, huge questions you're asking. And I love that you're even asking them because it tells me that there is consideration for more that glaciers don't just melt that they aren't these these creatures out on our landscape that are already sometimes when i talk to people they just say the glaciers are melting and they use this language that's okay their conclusion is forgone you know climate change is happening and the glaciers are going to go away and i think there's so much more there's so much more to the human spirit to humanity we talk about glaciers. Uh, you said in the beginning of your question, we have 200,000 glaciers. But if you look at the very beginning of my book, I say we have 400,000 glaciers. There's still discrepancy on the number of glaciers. I don't count just glaciers and just ice caps. I add all forms of ice to get a number of 400,000 ice glaciers out there I include ice streams and circ glaciers and mountain glaciers and valley glaciers and these small tiny little glaciers called glacierettes which are usually glaciers that are what oh typically smaller than 0.1 kilometers squared but I count them because all ice in my view counts because anywhere glaciers are located on this planet Whether we're talking about glaciers, they're in the Arctic, glaciers in Antarctica, glaciers in South America and North America, glaciers up in Alaska or in Asia or in Africa or in the Middle East or Europe or everywhere glaciers are located on this planet. They're located in inhabited and historic environments. Where there are glaciers, there are people. And the two have been interacting for the entirety of human history. But we haven't paid all that much attention to that. What we've done a lot of really well is looked at glaciers from a physical science lens where we monitor them and we measure them and we predict them. And we do that really, really well. But what we haven't really looked at is how glaciers show up in human society, how glaciers affect you and me, whether it's a huge ice cap, Or it's a tiny, tiny little glacierette, that whole range of ice. How does that affect you and me? And how has it been affecting all of us throughout human history? If you look at it from that lens, the idea that there is immense complexity there. there There's so many stories, so many different ways of knowing ice. That starts to make sense. We start to understand that, yes, of course, there's all this complexity. Let's unpack it. Let's look at all those stories, and then we're going to know more. We're going to know more about ice, but we're also going to know more about ourselves. And I think that's pretty powerful.
0: I can literally feel the glaciers talking through you right now. Uh, I feel your connectedness to them. And a part of the complexity that is lost through this reduction is the cultural fabric of glaciers. You you had just begun to go into that. And I've heard you call folk glaciologies. So I would love if you could elaborate on how glaciers have lost their cultural context in dominant and scientific narratives. And what is the importance of remembering and revitalizing folk glaciologies? Yeah, and I don't know, even
1: today, if the idea of the term, the label Folk glaciology's works, and it is such a hard business when you have to go about labeling an entire uh, body of knowledge. So I don't know if folk glaciology works. We, my, my colleagues and I, we bandied about different terms. Do we say alternative uh, knowledges, indigenous knowledges, more than science knowledges? This gets really hard. But what we're trying to move towards is that there are all these different ways of knowing. ICE that people from, from different parts of the world, people from a range of genders, a range of ethnicities and religions, this just immense diversity of people, think about ICE that is both within and outside a Western scientific model of ICE, a, a Western scientific approach to ICE, which generally comes from that scientific method which generally goes back to that measuring and monitoring and predicting ice, which gives us really good information, but it's not the entirety. It's not the only thing we can learn about ice, but it does tend to today define how many people approach ice. It defines what is an approach to ice, what is a way of learning about ice and what is not. And it does tend to therefore push away anything that might be outside of that. Let me give you an example. For Western scientific uh, practices, when you think about glaciers, you're gonna monitor and measure and predict them. You're not necessarily going to find a value in say, people who perceive glaciers as sentient, glaciers as alive, as breathing creatures. That might That's pretty outside of that, that Western approach. Uh, I think it's easy if you have that Western scientific approach to say, well, glaciers just simply are not alive. They don't fit any of the categorizations. So that's outside. But a lot of people who have studied glaciers and studied how people interact with them find evidence of perceptions of sentience. A classic example is Julie Crookshank's work from Southeast Alaska and British Columbia and the Yukon Territory, where indigenous people... Uh, found glaciers not to be these passive creatures, but rather these very alive, uh, breathing, interacting phenomenon on the landscape that then kind of dictated their social order. My own work in Iceland, not speaking for every Icelander, but definitely speaking to some, I found that some Icelanders uh, found glaciers to be on some range of alive And why that might be important, just to give you a a more detailed example, one person, he took me to the glacier uh, Skaulafelsjokult, and he told me that he'd been coming back to this glacier for for most of his life, and that when he was a young boy, he had been playing around the glacier while his dad was working, and he heard the glacier growl at him. And he told his dad, and his dad explained that the glacier was alive and that the glacier knew he was there. And ever since that moment, my friend had been going back to this glacier every year to interact, update, visit a friend, have a coffee. And if you look at what that actually kind of shows us, it shows a level of care that kind of extends beyond our typical uh, interactions with the environment. This glacier was cared for by my friend and by many other people who saw glaciers that, that were alive to them. It extended the level of care. People were concerned about what was happening with that ice, about what that glacier's future was like, how that glacier uh, monitored their own lives and the lives of those people in the community. It was an extension of care that we don't see. So that's a little bit outside of that Western scientific model, but it is just as important because it speaks to that human experience of living on this planet, whether you're living with glaciers or you're living with forests or oceans or gardens and backyards. How we interact with our environment dictates how we care for our environment and what future we want to move into with our environment. That's why this stuff gets really important.
0: I really loved hearing this idea of glaciers being sentient because that's something I've actually always felt when I've been able to have the luck to spend time with glaciers. I've always felt them being alive and so wise and powerful and I really can't help but think of glaciers as old growth ice. This you know formed by the compression of time holding stories and experience and there is indeed a profound spiritual dimension to their existence and while I remain completely enamored by their origin in a different time they're also still very much alive in this world and present in the landscapes of today and so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the wisdom of glaciers and What do they want to share with us, or maybe what have they shared with you in these old wisdom ways?
1: I'd love that question. And I think I'm going to answer it in two different ways one just personally, and then just one a little bit larger. So, thinking about the wisdom of glaciers and thinking about what stories they have to tell us, I have found, especially given the last couple of years and the complexities of. Of living today, that when I need to think clearly, I go to the ice. When I need to be creative, I go to the ice. When I need to sort out a problem, I go to the ice. Glaciers for me are a place where I can park my imagination. They are a place where I can rest. They are a place where I can energize. When I'm out on the ice, because it's such a sensory experience, when you're walking on the ice, You have to be aware of exactly what's in front of you because there's a lot of danger there. There's also a lot of things to pay attention to for sensory, for detail, for beauty. Uh, There's the sounds of your crampons walking across crunchy ice. There's the sounds of the ice throughout the day as it changes with temperature. So the actual sounds on the glacier change depending on what time of day it is. There's all the different light. There's all the different features. There's all the different vegetation. There's life on ice. And for me, I go there and it sharpens, it whittles away all of the other things that aren't important and makes me focus. And so I think some of the wisdom of ice for me personally is that it allows me to be more human, more present. But then if you're thinking like, okay, that's one individual, but what about a larger scale, more people? What What's the stories glaciers can tell us? And I think about one particular glacier that serves as a really good example, one glacier out of those 400,000 individual glaciers, glacierettes and ice caps out there, one glacier. Uh, in Iceland, Breiðamerkurjökull. Jogholt, it's this large glacier that a lot of people have visited because it has a large glacier lake in front of it, Jogholt Big icebergs. It's absolutely stunning. And where I usually pop up onto this glacier, it's a place, you have all the blue, blue white ice that meets a really gray, uh, scraped clean landscape where the ice is melting away. And it's in this large valley. And when I'm walking on that glacier, when I pop up onto that glacier, one of the things that really, really stands vivid to my brain is that where I'm standing on that ice, a thousand years ago when Iceland was first settled, there was no ice there. Used to be a really green and lush valley. But... When those first Norse settlers came from Scandinavia and they came to where the America Yogurt sits today, they looked around in that valley and they didn't see ice. All they saw was that lush green valley, that birch forest, and those people, they thought they hit jackpot. And what they did is they moved in and they built families and farms and futures. And they lived in that valley for hundreds of years, all the way up until the little ice age. When the climate started to cool and so the America started to surge forward down this valley. And glaciers don't ever move very easily forward or backwards. They always take a step forward, maybe two steps back, step forward, step another forward, then one back. And so in this valley where these Icelanders were living, these early Icelanders, they started to watch this glacier creep towards them and then go backwards and then creep towards them. And they had to make decisions. Every day they had to wake up. Look at where that glacier was as it started to come down valley. And they had to decide, is today the day that we go or we stay? Do we run or not? Just like the thousands and thousands of people today who stand on the edge of the the Rio Grande, they stand on the edge of the Mediterranean, and they look behind themselves at changing environments, and they make a decision, do we go or do we stay? Icelanders were making that decision hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in the case of where they were living in this valley, they actually had to flee because that glacier never stopped. It just kept coming forward, and it moved right on over those farms, those families, those futures. and it destroyed the entire valley. It just kept coming forward all the way until about the end of the 1800s or so. And then the climate shifted again. and the glacier started to respond to that 1890s, that time frame. The glacier started to creep backwards as the climate started to warm. And Icelanders, they saw this and they started to move back into this area. They've started to inhabit this valley. But this time they built their houses on little hills and they kept an idea. They kept an eye on that glacier because they knew it would come forward again and again and again. Or it would go backwards again and again and again. They always had to live with this change in environment. And that's what's really important about the wisdom of glaciers because these people lived here with this changing environment, these glaciers that would constantly move forward or they would move backwards. They would always move and people had to respond to their changing environments. And today we look around ourselves at our changing environments, changing in ways and at rates we've never experienced before. And one of the best places to learn about how to deal with a changing environment is to go to the places where people have lived with glaciers. Iceland is one example of many. And we can learn about how you become flexible, how you live with a very volatile place. And those, those lessons from ice are gonna affect the whole world because everywhere we live today, the world is changing, our environments are changing at different rates. It's, it's a pretty, pretty huge lesson that glaciers can deliver to us. The For The Wild podcast team is so grateful for the continued support through our Patreon subscribers. If you haven't signed up yet, Head over to www.patreon.com slash for the wild to engage directly with our team, weekly guests, to hear additional content, and receive access to other bonus material throughout the year.
0: This reminds me of a passage that you you said a couple years ago, and I'll quote it. So you said, climate change is not an enemy to be vanquished. It is a phenomenon deeply tied to our daily lived existence. It is part of the conversation our mixed up, beautiful, contrary, and imaginative people must have about who we are as a people and where we want to go, end quote. And I was so struck by this passage because it seems really rare that people are able to come to this reckoning. You know, we are in a time where we have to engage with climate change and not run away from it. Although we may migrate, we can't escape climate change. And just imagining this valley that you're speaking of in Iceland and I, gosh, it really brings up so many questions to me, but I kind of have... Maybe a question around how you were talking about how glaciers grow and retreat, grow and retreat. But as we're in this perhaps new stage of climate change, where it seems like glaciers, in a sense, are mostly only retreating because climate change is really going towards the direction of warming, warming, warming. And what always gets me is although we have all these scientific numbers and we see that we're warming the planet what do we do? We only burn more fossil fuels in the face of it. What do we do? We only consume more. What do we do? We only create more plastic. So just seeing those numbers that we see the numbers and we see the temperatures rising, we're really just burning more than we ever have before. So if we look at that and then try to understand the fate of glaciers in this time, What would your prediction be for glaciers' futures? I mean, of course, I'm sure all 400,000 of them have different fates, but I wonder if the majority of them have the same fate, which is melting.
1: It's really hard to look into the future. And there are so many unknowns, especially with increasing climatic changes. So we do have some good evidence today that shows us as as some ice is melting in some places, especially ice that is located on top of volcanoes, uh, we might have more volcanic activity, which might mean more aerosols in our atmosphere, which might mean uh, a temporary cooling. There are so many variables uh, and so many new technologies. And so it's really hard to say, and I try to stay away from, the future is this. Right now, unequivocally, the trend is we're losing our world's ice. It is melting quicker today than it has ever melted in human history before. And we have really good evidence that says that's what's happening. Is this a reversible trend? I think it depends on geography and scale and where. Uh, Can our glaciers grow again? Uh, It depends, again, on geography and scale. And I'm not trying to be vague. There are just too many variables to control for. And I don't ever want to say we're moving into a world without ice. Because I don't want to be fatalistic, and I don't want to say that this is our future. This is our concrete future, because it also then makes it an inevitable future. It also then says this is where we're going, and there's no way to change course. I think there are a lot of ways to change course, and there's a lot of places that are working on that. But if we took all the variables off the table and said, what are we doing, and what's the future we're moving into, if nothing changes, then we're going to be losing the majority of our ice. And I think we have to have some really important conversations about what that might mean. Because the quote that you read at the beginning of your question about what's happening with our world today, we know that climatic changes are happening everywhere. They're happening at all geographies, all times, at all scales. But why are we still burning? Why are we still working on immense natural resource extraction? living in a world of plastic? Why are we continuing a life we know is unhealthy? And I think it really comes back down to how we talk about climate change. And this is another lesson we can get from glaciers. This is another great lesson that you can learn a lot about in my new book, The Secret Lives of Glaciers. It comes down to value. So if you just looked just on the south coast of Iceland and said, what's the value of glaciers there? And what's happening? Well, we know at different rates and speeds, all the glaciers on the south coast are in some form of recession. How that recession works uh, is very different depending on the individual glacier, and I won't get into it right this moment. But the important bit is if you talk to people and you say, what's happening with the glaciers and what's this experience like for you? And is this, glacier, is this good or bad? We tend to have a global narrative that glaciers are melting and this is bad. You talk to people on the south coast to Iceland. Some of them say, you know, what's going to happen when Iceland loses all its ice? Can you still be Icelandic without ice? So people are afraid they're losing their identity as Icelanders. Other people look at all that melting ice and they say, especially older Icelanders, they say this is the very best thing that can happen. Because for years, those glaciers, they grew and they retreated and they grew and they retreated and they destroyed our farms and our families and our futures. So looking at the ice melting for the very first time, some people say they feel safe. This is a really good thing for them. Other people, they they say, you know, especially fishermen, they look at the glaciers melting and they say that this can cause some real economic hardship in this area because there's a there's a harbor there that all the fishermen use. They bring their boats in and out. And so as the ice is melting, that harbor is getting shallower and shallower. It's something called isostatic rebound. If you imagine a sponge in your hand, press that sponge down with your hand. When you take your hand away, that sponge, it springs right on back up. Same thing happening to the land. Glaciers, when they're really big, they press the land down. When the glaciers get smaller, that land, it springs right on back up. So this harbor that's on the south coast of Iceland, the glaciers are melting. So the land is springing back up which means that harbor is getting shallower. The boats can't come in and out. What's going to happen there? So they say it's really bad that the glaciers are melting. The fishermen do. But then a last one, talk talked to a lot of people there who are now in tourism. They say the glaciers are melting. People are coming from all over the world to see the ice before it's gone. Last chance tourism. So they look at their bank accounts, which are filling up And they say, I have economic stability. I'm rich now that the glaciers are melting because I'm doing all these different tourism activities and opening restaurants and hotels. They say this is good. So it's the same phenomenon, it's glacier change. But there's all these different values that associate with it. And this is such an important thing to talk about because I think this is why we don't really engage with climate change at a larger level. Why we continue to grab oil, why we live with all this plastic. When we have talked about climate change, we've often had a value-based conversation that says climate change is bad. But we don't really add that complexity. We don't add what are and can be short-term benefits. And I'm not getting into climate denial. What I'm saying is that to some people, the the change of the environment can give them a short-term benefit. It could bring that increased tourism. That is just as much a part of environmental change as a perceived negative impact such as, say, isostatic rebound. What it all is, though, is it is part of a shared experience of our environment changing. What happens to all the people that live, say, in the middle of the United States that are watching their gardens come in a little bit earlier and are secretly thrilled about that? They know it's probably because of climate change. but hey, their gardens are in a little bit earlier, or they might have warmer temperatures, or they might have more beautiful birds that are coming in. They might perceive a positive benefit to whatever change is occurring. And if we don't allow for a conversation around climate change that says there are short-term benefits, short-term disadvantages, there are all these complex uh, values that can be built into what is a shared experience. What unites all of us is that we are having environmental change and we need to be having a conversation that says, how do we learn to recognize that change outside of a value? How do we all see what is happening and then begin to work with that, regardless of what that value might be? If we just consistently leave a reduced conversation about climate change that says, climate change is bad, we need to stop it. Or... uh, Resource extraction is bad, we need to stop it. Or glacier change is bad, we need to stop it. We will never move forward with these things. We have to have these messy, dirty, long-term, complex conversations about what is happening. And we have to allow for geography and scale and time that the changes that are happening in one place are radically different than they are in another place. And that also then pushes those local solutions, those local communities to act.
0: Oh, I have so many thoughts spurring from your response. I'm thinking about wanting to learn more about how communities are engaging. You know, I've come across stories of communities who are farming glaciers and even creating ice stupas to provide stable sources of water during periods of drought. And then there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, I
1: have written a lot about that. And here's what's so important about that, that kind of ties through the thread of the conversation we're having right now. Are glaciers alive? Well, you look at a Western scientific model and no. And can you breed glaciers? Well, Western scientific model, no. But you go to these parts of the Karakoram and the Hindu Kush, where for centuries, local villagers, local glacier farmers, they identified a range of genders of, of glaciers. They knew that a female glacier was a glacier that was blue and surged and gave off a lot of water. And a male glacier was this glacier with a lot more soil and sediments on it, moved slowly, didn't give off as much water. And they knew that they could take chunks from male glaciers and female glaciers and bring them together and with lots of ritual, build a brand new glacier. And they did that for centuries. They did it to control water and to control irrigation. They did it for protection. They could uh, fill in valleys, oral stories say this is how they protected themselves from Genghis Khan's raiders. We hear all of that. But from a Western scientific model, where's the value in information like that? That's some of the most easily and first dismissed (laughs) information. But we can take that information, those indigenous technologies and apply them today. Today, a lot of areas that are drought stricken because of increasing climatic changes These places would serve well to have an artificial glacier. This is uh, water and snow that is held vertically, so you don't need to have a reservoir. And you can then build these huge things. The technology is all over the Internet. A lot of places around the world are doing this now. And you can then have a little bit of water that you can control in between going from the rainy season dry season, dry season to rainy season, any drought, you have controllable water. It's an amazing technology that we wouldn't know anything about, except for if we looked a little bit harder at these indigenous knowledges, these alternative knowledges, these folk knowledges. They're so powerful because they can help us learn to live in a really changing world. It just gets me so excited.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. I uh, That's really fascinating. I really want to hear more about the gender of glaciers, because that is something that's absolutely not talked about in Western science, and and also these technologies of, I mean, it's it is it's fascinating, and there's so so much hope for solutions in there if we were to only, as a Western society, give T E K or traditional ecological knowledge value in this dominant culture. But you know, speaking of this dominant culture, I I I see a lot of. Um, dominance around glaciers, glacier science, glacier exploration, I have spent some really wonderful quality time in Southeast Alaska and beyond in the Yukon and further north in Alaska, creating another project that we'll be releasing sometime this year, and it's amazing how many glaciers are named after white men, and the, it just it's mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating because. The ways in which polar and mountain exploration have furthered colonial, capitalist, and imperialist projects is really a lesser discussed side of glaciology. Uh, the article you co-authored, Glaciers, Gender, and Science, it outlines several glaring examples of this including that the United States militarized presence in the polar regions during the Cold War era and British and American attitudes around Arctic exploration in the 19th century. And then you also included how in 2009, former CIA director R. James Woolsey testified before the House of Representatives that the melting of Andean glaciers would pose a, quote, security threat in regards to immigration policies. So, you know, there's really a clear pattern in which systems of domination recognize the value of glaciological knowledge. But of course, you know, the question of why do we think it's important to center these conversations or how can rethinking the field of glaciology broaden our concepts Of the environment, our relationship to it or with it. I mean, you've discussed that in a lot of senses already threading throughout our conversation, but I think if we just go by this um, male-dominated exploration version of glaciers and the dominant culture's version of glacial science, it cuts out so much of the story. And I, I know that's a lot of what we've been talking about, but I feel... And I felt very called to bring that up because, like I said, um, even going into Glacier Bay this summer and hearing the stories from Clinkett uh, elders in Huna and the pain they felt over having to leave Glacier Bay when the glaciers grew and then wanting to come back yeah. but realizing that that land had been colonized and they were no longer welcome there. And then just seeing the John Muir Glacier and all, all these white male – glaciers that really have no story or respect for what was and what still is in these areas. Um, and so I, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if you want to, you know, speak more to that, um, because I know you've done so much work around this. I think that
1: this is a conversation that is that is really pertinent to the Me Too movement, to this very strong, elevated sense of the era and the time that we're living in today. And there's, you know, science, science is such a a nebulous term. And when I'm talking about science, I'm talking mainly about physical sciences and, and talking about glaciology here. But... Particularly to glaciology, I mean, if you look at this paper that we wrote, right, Glaciers, Gender, and Science, uh, I, I wrote with my my lab, this is a summary paper. And we went through a lot of data and we found that glaciology is dominated and has is dominated and has been dominated by men and masculine practices. And we supported all of this with really hard data. And we found that this shapes Basically, who gets to do glacier research, what questions are asked about glaciers, what methods are used, what policy proposals are suggested, who gets to fund and receive funding for glacier research, how the public imagines glacier research. And it goes kind of this idea that it's a masculine thing that to do glacier research... You need to be out in the dangerous field in Greenland or in Alaska or in Antarctica. You need to be doing this manly, heroic field work, you know, this this physically demanding work, which tends to be this uh, very publicly imagined rough and tough man. And you get rewarded for that hard work when you get a glacier named after you and you get all this funding. And I have found this to be not true on the ground today. I have found that while we look at historic practices of glaciology and you see women and Indigenous people and non-Western white men absolutely either silenced or excluded or marginalized, today there are so many women out there, there are so many Indigenous people out there, there are so many non-Western white men out there working with ice, even if you don't see that in those tradition traditional masculine spaces of women getting PhDs in glaciology and publishing in glaciological journals and that kind of thing. Women, Indigenous people, non-Western white men are out there understanding, investigating, working with ICE in all kinds of ways. It's really quite an exciting time to be there. I just want them to get more attention. I want their work to be out there because It just isn't. Uh, Every time we see pictures of glaciers or we see stories of glaciers it comes back to that really simplistic masculine uh, narrative and you see usually a solo man out on the ice by himself and that's not how work is done today. I'm doing a lot of work right now in Iceland. I'm doing a new project looking specifically at women and ice in Iceland and one of the interesting things about the increase of tourism there is that a lot more women have become glacier guides And so they've gone through all that classic glacier guide training. But you can spot women out on glaciers uh, really easy because they don't have as much gear as men do. And I have interviewed so many of these women. And what they tell me is, you know, they have got all the certifications. They know exactly how to rescue someone if they fall into a crevasse. But they go out there with the minimal amount of gear necessary. And they find that many of their male colleagues go out on the ice with the maximum amount of gear necessary. So you have this performance of masculinity out on the ice where you see many of these female glacier guides, they're out there, they're, they interact with the ice. They tend to spend a lot more time in the foreground of a glacier where there's a lot of interesting different features and vegetation and they have just not that huge performance. And then you're out there with a lot of male glacier guides and they are they're geared to the, to the teeth with this, these immense loads of things that aren't necessary, but does kind of then um, authorize that narrative that they have all this gear. It's, it's, I think we're going on a little bit of a, of a tangent here, but it's such a clear visual of how we still believe and think about ice today and how someone can interact with ice. What happens if you are interested in researching glaciers and you're not uh, fully able-bodied? What happens if you are interested in researching glaciers and you come from a place in the world that doesn't give you access to, say, a Western uh, scientific research institute? Do you just not? If you physically can't be out on a glacier, does that preclude you? Now you can't study ice or perhaps you're geographically bound in a space where now you can't study ice because you don't have access to, say, Harvard. I don't think those are true to how the world works today. I think somebody can, who maybe doesn't have full ability to, uh, isn't fully mobile, can study ice in a lot of different ways. I think that uh, if we start looking at what does it mean to be a glaciologist today, the answer is how do we absolutely include as many people and viewpoints and geographies and perspectives so that it is not this narrow masculine view, but rather this much more inclusive practice that says, if we're thinking about ice Let's look at it from as many different ways as possible. And that's all allowed, authorized and included.
0: What's happening with glacial scientists is really fascinating. And it's not shocking of course, because we see it manifest this toxic masculinity and in, in really every part of the world. and, and, I was even reading about how it wasn't until the 1990s that the British even allowed women to spend the winter in Antarctica, or that in 1987, Elizabeth Morris had to talk to all the researchers' wives to ensure that she would not hit on their husbands while conducting research in the field. So, I mean, it's it's unbelievably ridiculous, really, what women have had to deal with just to be able to be valued in the field of glaciology and I think this is a very important piece of the history of how glaciers have been looked at and of course of course these other ways of knowing ways of seeing glaciers have been left out of the canon and that's what most people then hear about so I I think it's really an important topic to touch on and um, and Incredibly why-
1: important. Mm-hmm. It's,
0: I, I just, I think that if
1: if we go back to the initial initial idea that glaciers are one of our, our most visible manifestations of global climatic changes, and people worldwide are going to have to learn how to live with, adapt, mitigate, and stop global climatic changes, then we have to start looking at how people live with ice, right? That's just a real basic spot. It doesn't preclude oceans, rivers, forests, but it's a real basic starting point to look at. And if we then start to build walls, if we start to build parameters, again, around what we can and cannot study when it comes to ice, we limit ourselves. If we're saying that glaciers are some of the most visible evidence of climatic changes and we need to understand how glaciers respond, we need to then say everything's included. We can't do this malarkey where the British... What, they didn't allow women to overwinter in Antarctica until the early 1990s, right? Because of gender, women can't do X. That's just ridiculous. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for people who say, if you are an artist who's trying to figure out uh, different sounds on glaciers, well, guess what? That's not glaciology. We don't have time for you. I don't, that's all just ridiculous right now. If we're trying to understand how to live with and stop climatic changes, We need to say everything's in right now, regardless of your discipline, regardless of your perspective, your ability, your gender, your ethnicity, where you are in the world. Everything is in. We need all knowledges and all brains put together because that's the only way we're going to understand glaciers. That's the only way we're going to understand climatic changes. That is the only way we're going to move into a better future.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it also kind of reminds me of this idea of what science has done so far, which is to me, very extractive science, kind of this similar to some anthropologists who simply collect the data they need, and then they leave without really engaging in the communities they claim to be experts in. Um, so I I think what you're saying is so right on that deepening our relationship with place, with communities who have been living with the ice, deepening our our channels of connection with the ice in very different ways than what's allowed in the scientific canon, those are the ways in which we're going to find true knowledge about where we're at now, where we're moving into the future, what are the things that we can do. And and I want to get back to this this, uh, gendering of the ice. And you had just started to touch on how the blue ice was female and the more uh, harder ice giving less water with the with the soil or dirt on top was male ice i and and i'm probably not saying that exactly right because this is a totally new concept for me but i'd really love to learn more about that because i've spent time with glaciers and i've definitely noticed the difference in these ice i mean the blue ice is so spectacular like it's like a jewel it's unbelievably beautiful and i wondered how is it this color and then i've gone to the tops and i've seen how the the soot gets on, you know, the tops of the glaciers and the bubbles of uh, carbon stored in the ice. And there's so much variation in a glacier. And so I'd love to just hear more um, of your experiences there. And maybe if you could break that down for us so that we could start to kind of visualize and get a better understanding of, of the complexity of just what the ice represents and all the different ways that it manifests.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I think is fascinating about glaciers is that, you know, dependent on the communities that are living with ice, dependent on where we are in the world, people have different relationships with ice. And that relationship might be a relationship of sentience where there's some perceived aliveness. And we see that in a lot of places where there's ice. There might be perceptions of gender uh, where some communities see glaciers in different ranges of gender. One of, if you were to scale a little bit up and out of that and try to think about what that means, it means that people are looking at glaciers and identifying individuals and then identifying characteristics and traits and all of these different things. We have this word glaciers, and we often talk about glaciers doing this or glaciers doing that, but that doesn't actually match what's happening on the ground. We have these four hundred thousand glaciers, glacierats, ice caps, and Glaciers all are different. They're individuals. Just like you and I and all people are going to interact and respond to stresses, respond to heartbreak, respond to a happy movie or a sad movie in different ways. So, too, do glaciers. Glaciers respond to what's happening around them, increasing air temperatures, land temperatures, ocean temperatures, increasing uh, a landslide, all these different things, increasing climatic changes. They respond in different ways. No glacier responds the same way to the same thing. Uh, they're, they're very unique individuals and people and communities can then build in uh, culture and society around that. We have some examples from different places in the world, from Southeast Alaska, and from Greenland, and from Iceland, uh, from the Karakoram. But what I can tell you is if we have such a diverse set of examples from just these few places, and we know that glaciers all over the world, let's find more examples of that. There are so many glaciers out there, and there's just a few people looking at this stuff. We need more people looking at this stuff. But here's the thing. You can't just go up to somebody in in a community especially as a Western researcher, and say, do you think glaciers are alive? Or is that glacier a man or a woman? You can't do that. A lot of the people that I spoke with in Iceland about glaciers being sentient, this is a series of conversations over years, because a lot of people, have a, they are aware of global narratives of glaciers. So if you really want to get in, if you want to find out what is happening on the ground, this is long term, messy and dirty research. You have to be there for a long time. You have to be away from your family, from your friends, from your community as you're out there. It's also very expensive research and it doesn't fit an easy model. A lot of our funding models today are back to that masculine, uh, that masculine system especially in Western science where you're going to go and you're going to be there for X amount of days and you're going to get X amount of data and you're going to publish it in X amount of journals. The kind of stuff that I do where I spend years in communities. I've been very lucky to get funding through the National Science Foundation, the Fulbright Program and the National Geographic. But I'm always looking for funding. I'm always trying to pay to be there even longer because the longer I'm there, the more I learn about how a community perceives individual glaciers, the more I learn about how an individual community reacts to individual change, which then, if you scale all the way up, tells us about how people worldwide live with climate change today. But this is not easy research, and it's much easier to homogenize ice or tie it together geographically, get a metric for it, glaciers in this area are melting X amount, and then publish it. That gives us data that we can hold on to, but it doesn't tell us all that much about the human condition. And that's what I do. And it's really, really hard long-term work. And it doesn't fit neatly into a lot of places. But I think it really shows that complexity. Witness
3: the wonder we Gentle and the cruel Adopt The manner and the gesture Of a nonsense-talking fool Drinking Pure reflection Surface of the Thumble On search Circum Emulating Around about the road Well, wow, um this conversation
0: has been so beautiful and uh, the way that you understand the world and climate change and the Anthropocene and glaciers and communities and culture and knowledge and science and the way you interweave them so thoughtfully is uh, gorgeous. It's just, it's, it's delightful. It's, it's delicious. I can't, I really am so grateful for your vision and your follow-through with your vision, I think that's also been a big takeaway for me. And um I would love to open this up and and ask if there's anything that you want to share with us that we haven't already mentioned or whether it's about your work or something that you feel is really important um, for us to walk away with, I'd love to to give you the space to go in whatever direction you feel is needed?
1: I think something really important to think about is that our future is not set. I think with social media, I think with uh, the news and all these things, it's so easy to hear all these very genuine, very true, negative uh, stories. And these are these are happening. And I think it's incredible that we've become so aware of them, but it can be really disabling to constantly bear the weight of this. And I think one way to navigate with that is to be aware that our future is not set, that we have the ability to really shape the future we move into in the world we want to live in and how we want to live, what our community looks like. We do have a great deal of agency in a lot of different scales. And so I think holding on to that, holding on to some form of power, as individual as it might sound or as collective as it might sound, it's it's one way to kind of push back. I cannot control the future of glaciers, but I can help the future of glaciers. I can continue educating people, not only about the metrics of ice, but all the ways that ice shows up in our life. That's one area for me. I think we all need advocates. I'm a glacier advocate. So for all of your listeners, I think it's important to wonder, what are you gonna be an advocate for? Is it going to be in something in your backyard, in your environment? Is it going to be forests or birds or clouds or what is it? And hopefully it's something you're passionate about or who is it? Is it a person? Is it a group of people? Is it, is it structures? What is it? Because if we become advocates for these things, we become helpers towards these things. And if all of us are doing this, we have the ability to make a better future, but it, it, it's a hard thing to ask right now because I think so many of us feel so disabled with all the negative news out there. I just ask that your listeners grab that thing they care about, become that advocate and move forward with it because we really need it right now. It's a future that I wanna live and I'm trying to make better and I hope your listeners do too.
2: Thanks for listening to For the Wild Podcast. The music today was by Fountain Sun. Ayanna Young is our founder and host. Our podcast team includes myself as producer and editor, Francesca Glassbell as producer and writer, with communications director Aaron Wise, music coordinator Carter Lou McElroy, and managing directors Melanie Younger and Mara Joy.